0: If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 1, I promise you we will get there in just a little bit. 1 Corinthians 1 is the first passage we will be looking at this morning. I was thinking through how to serve you this morning, how to bring the Word to you in a way that will encourage you and equip you and sharpen you for the ministry going on here, and in talking with some of the people here, are. Hearts were drawn to this idea of answering a question that we dealt with at our church some weeks ago. And it's the question of what is fellowship? As we got into this year, I started doing a a 12-week series on church basics, just answering questions, what are pastors, what are deacons, what is baptism, things like that. And we ended with this idea of what is fellowship. It's an important question to ask because fellowship ends up being one of those things you kind of know that you're supposed to have and enjoy But we rarely take time to actually describe it and define it. Fellowship is something we claim to have at many of our events. But I want to stop this morning and look at Scripture and think, okay, are we thinking about this idea of fellowship the way that God does? Are we talking about fellowship the way God talks about it? Are traditions that we have in line with Scripture, are they against Scripture? Are they some kind of mixture of the two? All of us will see different things as we look through this survey this morning on what is fellowship, what is fellowship in a local church to be particular. If you've been involved with the church for any amount of time, you've probably used that word fellowship. Even this morning, we just experienced what is called a time of fellowship. You might want to know what that is and then evaluate if you're using that time effectively or not. It is a time of fellowship. You've called things that, that involve lunch, or maybe you're meeting someone for coffee. Maybe you've had a great conversation with someone one night, and you reflect on it and tell someone else. It was just a great time of fellowship. It seems so normal to talk this way, but I imagine if you're like me, if you grow up around these terms and rarely hear them actually defined and described biblically, you sometimes wonder what they actually are. So this morning, we want to survey just the New Testament's usage of this idea of fellowship. And I don't often do this, but it will be helpful today because I'll reference this word a lot. The Greek word that gets translated fellowship is one that has been uh, popularly used uh, in recent years, but it's the idea uh, or the word koinonia, K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A, koinonia. And I, I say that to you only because our English Bibles don't always translate it the same way. So when we find it somewhere else, it may use a different English word, but I'm going to let you know this is that same word we're looking for. We're going to track this word through the New Testament. Before we do, you need to understand that that word, koinonia, it just most basically refers to something shared. So a shared experience, a shared idea, a shared possession, a shared job, a shared status. If you have something in common with someone, you can label that, this idea of koinonia, that we'll look at this morning. And again, I'm going to intentionally go wider than deeper because I'm attempting to wrap our minds around just the New Testament use of koinonia or fellowship. And later, hopefully that whets your appetite to dive deeper. For now, we want to survey the idea of New Testament koinonia or fellowship. I want to show you that to have fellowship biblically in the New Testament is to share five common categories, five realities. We'll look at these together. But if you can get these five distinctions in your mind, you'll start thinking through fellowship, realizing where it lays in the New Testament. Let me show you what I mean with point number one. Christian fellowship is to share life with Christ. Christian fellowship is to share life with Christ We begin with Christian fellowship in a place that we normally don't begin. When I ask you what is fellowship, you normally go peer-to-peer, and that is normal, and we'll get there. But we start with this idea of fellowship being shared life with Christ because that's where it begins in the New Testament. And I want to bring in a distinction that you may not have heard of before, but it's one that you must never forget. And I honestly, I can't stress this enough for the health of you as a Christian. You must never forget this distinction. When we talk about shared life with Christ, a helpful way to think through it is the idea of union and communion. Union and communion. Union is an objective way to think about your shared life with Christ. And communion is your subjective way to think about your life with Christ. So just take for a second the idea of union, the objective one. This is what you can call an on-off switch. The switch is up or down. It's on or off. In this aspect, there's there's no way to have better union with Christ. There's no Christian that has bad union with Christ or good union with Christ. You either have it or you don't. The idea of union is never to be increased or decreased. It's never strengthened or weakened by your faith or your sin. So your fellowship with Christ is first and foremost an objective reality. That is union. Now the other way of thinking through it is communion. And that would be more like a dimmer. So some of you have that switch. You turn it on and then you've got that slide next to it that you can make it brighter or more dim. But no matter how far you push it down, it can't ever turn that light off. And no matter how far you push it up, the light doesn't become more on. Again, objective is union. That's on or off. Communion is your experience of that union. It is like a dimmer. Not only it can fluctuate, but it does fluctuate all the time. You can look back on seasons where you experienced some sweet fellowship with Christ. You can look back on seasons where you neglected that relationship. You can look back on seasons where the dimmer was higher up on the scale and lower on the scale. This is much more like a roller coaster than some of us admit. This aspect of your life with Christ is impacted by your obedience and your maturity or immaturity, your faith, your sin, and so many other areas of the Christian life. And that's the reason this distinction is so necessary, because as you ride that subjective roller coaster of communion, you must never think that it affects your union with Christ, as if more Bible reading could make you more in Christ, or if more sinning makes you a little less in Christ. That must never be your thinking as a Christian. Union is on-off switch, up or down, you have it or you don't. Communion is how you make the light brighter or more dim, If you ever have real objective union with Christ, the Bible teaches you always will. No amount of sweet communion or poor communion will ever take that away. This is a distinction that I was introduced to from reading the works of John Owen. This is the way that he helpfully talked, and he brought my attention to where I told you to turn, 1 Corinthians 1. I want you to notice how objective this is, how passive we are. 1 Corinthians 1, look at verse 9. God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship, koinonia, of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, notice this is something that we are passive in. You were called into this fellowship. God did this. This is a reference to the objective part of your fellowship with Christ. And that is the root system in place that gives rise to the fruit of experience that experiencing that communion with Christ. Without the objective root system, without the light switch being on, you can play with the dimmer all you want and it's never going to do anything. This is similar to how we know Paul lays out the idea in Ephesians. Ephesians 1 through 3, you are this. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, therefore do this. You don't do this to become this. You see that you are this in Christ, therefore you live this way. So, You are a child of God, Ephesians 1-3, Ephesians 4-6, live like it. You are filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 1-3, so 4-6, live like it. You are chosen by Him to be holy and blameless, so be holy and blameless. Obedience as a Christian is never about you achieving a status with God. It is about you living out your new identity in Christ rather than the one you had in Adam. So while obedience is crucial to your communion... It never factors factors into your, your, your objective union. Greater experienced fellowship with Christ comes from you living out your objective fellowship with Christ. And so when we think about fellowship, we start with Christ and we think in those two categories. Is the switch up or down? Do I have it or not? Is it objective? Is it a reality in life or is it not? And then, if it is a reality, then you can think about how to enjoy that fellowship. Fellowship in the New Testament is first and foremost about your fellowship with Christ. Go to 1 John 1 to see this in another area by another author. Same divine author, obviously, but different human author. 1 John 1. We saw what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 John 1. John lays out this idea of fellowship for us as well. 1 John 1, John's explaining why he's going to write what he's going to write. He's, he's relaying the things he saw and heard, and he's telling you why here. Look at verse 3. 1 John 1, 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Drop down to verse 6. If we say we have fellowship, koinonia, with him... God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. John explains in 1 John 1, 3, and 6 that he's got the goal of proclaiming what he's seen and heard. And the reason is because that truth spoken by him about Christ is the way that we're going to hear and have fellowship with God. Like I said earlier, as a believer, to be a believer is someone... That has that objective fellowship life in Christ. Someone who is in fellowship with Christ. You are someone who shares that life with Christ. And since he's alive, now you are. Since he paid for sins, your debt is paid. Since he lived a righteous life, you did. This is our union with Christ that, again, is objective. Now tied to that is the related fruit of that, the subjective reality that you start to live in. I start to actually produce some of these things. I am in Christ. If your faith is stronger, then you are trusting Christ more and more and you will enjoy him more. If your faith is weaker, then you're doubting him more and you will miss fellowship with him that you know you long for. That's the subjective side of this life with Christ. Not touching the objective, but fluctuating as a subjective roller coaster in life. That's how you think through fellowship in the New Testament to begin with. I want to think about my fellowship with Christ. Is it there? And then, secondly, how is it? The second point I want to look at in this survey is taking that same idea, but just you, not with Christ, but with Christians. So, secondly, Christian fellowship is to share life with Christians. First, it's to share life with Christ. Secondly, with Christians. And again, you want to think in this two-part way. this union and communion. If I am in Christ, then I have fellowship with him objectively. And if I am in him, then I am a part of his body. Whether or not I experience that well or ever or perfectly or poorly, whatever it is my experience is, that doesn't change the reality of it. Again, this is again like an on off switch. Do you have union with Christ? If so, then you do have union with Christians. This union is a fact that is achieved in Christ alone. No matter how unsanctified you are or feel, no matter how slowly you're growing, none of those things impact your real union with Christ or his people if it's a reality. In other words, biblical fellowship with Christians is based, again, first and foremost, on our fellowship with Christ. If that is missing, no matter how much you try to be a part of a local fellowship, it will never work. You would become, if the church is like a body, you'll become what some people have compared to a shoe. Most of you, I think, came to church with shoes on. Right? Now, I'm from Georgia. That's an optional part of going out. I Again, mean, You came with shoes. You, you spend most of your days in shoes. Rarely will people ever see you, and they don't also see shoes. But at the end of the day, you can take your shoes off with no pain. That's different than taking your foot off. So to be with the body isn't necessarily to be a part of the body. If that fellowship, that objective union with Christ is missing, no matter how hard you try, no matter how involved you get, you will never just be absorbed into the body that way. It first and foremost is your union with Christ that therefore gives you that same objective reality of fellowship with Christians. Look again at 1 John 1. Look at verse 3. You you notice I skipped that reference to fellowship because we're saving it for this. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Go to verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is light, in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Again, notice how closely tied your object of fellowship with God is with your object of fellowship with his people. To have fellowship with God is to have fellowship with Christians. You either objectively have both or neither. If we individually share life in Christ, then we also share that life together. This is why you read things in the New Testament where when someone was recognized as being a part of Christ, they were recognized as being a part of the church. So for instance, in Galatians 2, James, Peter, and John extend what's called the right hand of fellowship, the right hand of koinonia. They extend that when Barnabas and Paul were established as in Christ. They recognize them as one with Christ, therefore one with us. In Titus 1.4, Paul writes about how he and Titus share a common faith, a koinonia faith, a shared faith. Why? Because they're both in Christ. Once again, this shows how your life with Christ gives rise to your life with Christians. This is what causes us to live with one another in the church to the point where your joy is my joy and your sorrow is my sorrow, as if it's happening to my own body because we are one body. That is what Paul is trying to get at, especially in Ephesians. That's the first two general ways I want you to think about Christian fellowship. And they, they help give rise to the rest of what I'll get to you. Because this is going to get into how you more experience it. So objective realities, you're either in Christ or not. If you're in Christ, then you are also objectively in fellowship with Christians. But again, how do I enjoy that fellowship? How do I experience that fellowship? What can I do in life where I go, okay, this right here, this is fellowship? That's what we'll get. Starting with our third point this morning, Christian fellowship is to share ministry with Christians, is to share life with Christ, life with Christians. Thirdly, is to share ministry with Christians. When we speak about experiencing your union with Christ and Christians, start here. The church, I mean, the New Testament is acknowledging that you, as a part of Christ and his body, are engaged in a mission, in a ministry. You hear Jesus' command to his people to go and not only make more disciples, but to make mature disciples, and you know I'm invested in that work. I'm not only making sure that that work gets done, I'm going to be a part of how that work gets done. This is the idea of fellowship that often pops up in the New Testament. It's the idea of koinonia that was used with business partnerships. In fact, in Luke 5, when it's talking about how James and John worked with Peter, it says they had koinonia in the fishing business. They were partners. So the fishing business business doing well affects all three of them. If it does poorly, it affects all three of them. They rise and fall together on how that business does because they have fellowship in the business. Our business in church, the work of the church is this idea of disciple-making and maturing ministry. There is work to be done. And like I said, you're not only committed to making sure it gets done, but I'm going to be used as a part of this process of getting it done. This is one of the ways you partner in Christian fellowship. Turn with me to Philippians 1. Philippians 1. You'll see this use of koinonia there. In Philippians 1, one of Paul's prison epistles, he's writing to the church at Philippi. That has been nothing but encouraging to him. And again, here's where the ESV translates the word koinonia as something different than fellowship. I'm not. It's not saying it's wrong at all. I'm just... This is where the same word pops up, but it's different in English, so you might miss it. Philippians 1, verse 5. He says, Because of your partnership, fellowship, koinonia, in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers, fellowshippers, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Look over at chapter 4 verse 15 again remember early in his ministry the Philippians and Paul made a partnership in the gospel and he's commenting on these things in Philippians 1 and chapter 4 look at verse 15 Philippians 4 15 and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia no church entered into koinonia with me partnership with me and giving and receiving except you only even in Thessalonica you sent Me help for my needs once and again. Paul's saying that the Philippians partnered with him in the work of ministry from the beginning. Now, not the beginning of the gospel in the sense of from the incarnation, the birth, not that, but the beginning of his gospel ministry. They fellowshiped with Paul. How? By supporting his work, by being a part of his work. The Moody Bible commentary says this on this passage: says, Paul gave the gospel and received financial support the Philippians received pastoral care and gave for his material needs. That was, in summary, their partnership. So that's one way that you'll minister together. You connect, you fellowship, you share in the work of ministry by giving materially to the work. That is part of it. You may give money, you may give time. You also may open up your home. So in 2 John 11, there's a use of the word koinonia where John warns not to receive a false teacher into your home, because that would make you a koinonia with them in their ministry. So simply by opening up your home, being hospitable, and taking care of the traveling minister's needs, you enter into a partnership with him. So again, you can partner with ministry workers materially by giving that way or being hospitable, even by praying. Look back at chapter 1 of Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 19, and I'll admit the word koinonia is not used here, but it is the context Notice how even, I put in quotes, the great Apostle Paul. He was also a sinner saved by grace, used greatly of God. But sometimes we feel like he's invincible. Notice how he relied on people that you've never heard of in your life. Look at Philippians 1.19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is admitting here, I need you guys to pray for me. And we're reading this, and you don't know hardly anyone in the Philippian church. He mentions a few people. Now, it's not always good to get mentioned in Paul's letters. But he mentions a few. You don't know hardly any of them. And yet they were sustaining the ministry of the Apostle Paul. If you've been blessed by Paul, which we all have, then we were blessed by praying Philippians, helping his ministry out just through prayer. In Philippians 1, Paul wants them to pray for his release from prison. In 2 Thessalonians 3, he asks them to pray for his deliverance and the success of the gospel. Again, Paul knew very well that if my ministry is going to go anywhere, do anything, accomplish any good for God's glory, then it's going to require a sharing in this ministry with people who are praying for me. There's work to be done, and Christians share in that work when they give, show hospitality, pray. But again, don't forget locally how you can also partner in that ministry. You also partner with Ephesians 4. You get involved in encouraging and equipping other Christians for their work in ministry. Ministry is not relegated or, or relinquished to paid staff or pastors or elders. In Ephesians 4, biblically, every Christian is a minister. If you are in Christ, you objectively are a minister. And Ephesians 4 makes it clear that you are to use your mouth, your communication, to get truth to people, to equip and encourage them in the work of ministry that they have set out for them. You not only, as a body part, need to be trained and built up for ministry, but as a body part are used to train up others. This is why passages like Hebrews 3 make so much sense, because it's through the mouth of other people, through the communication with other Christians, that I'm going to hear truth confront me and help encourage me to persevere. Otherwise, I'm going to believe the lies of sin and the flesh and the devil, and my heart's going to harden and I'm going to fall away. So we need one another just to persevere in the truth. Ephesians, I mean, I'm sorry, Hebrews 10 adds to that. We need each other to be stirred up to love and good works. And even in Philippians 1, even Paul, like I said, the Apostle Paul needs encouragement for no, from normal, no-name Christians. And that's no different than here at Flint Hills. You look through the bulletin that we receive when we come in, and you can see names. Some of you will never see your name in that. That doesn't mean you're not a partner in ministry. You're going to bump into Christians here at Flint Hills, and maybe you're going to meet a person who is discouraged in the ministry, and so you're going to take truth from God's Word and encourage them. You're going to invest courage in them with truth. Maybe they're going wayward, and so you're taking truth to turn them back. Maybe they're doubting, so you take truth to strengthen them. Maybe they're unsure how to handle a situation, so you take truth from God's Word and help give them wisdom for whatever they're going through. All of this being done by you communicating what God has provided for us in His Word. By you taking things that you've learned and benefited from from God's Word and sharing it with others so that that objective partnership you have actually gets lived out. That's Paul's vision for this kind of partnership or fellowship in the church. By everyone doing their part to make sure the body's ministry actually gets accomplished. So just to review, Christian fellowship is to share life with Christ, life with Christians, ministry with Christians. And fourthly, is to share stuff with Christians. And I'm sure in homiletics class they would have loved for me to come up with a different word than stuff. (laughs) But it fit. You've got stuff and part of fellowship is sharing that stuff with other Christians. When you say you have Christian fellowship, it assumes that your union in the body means that body has the same stuff you have. They have access to it. Remember the early church. One of the things that gets overlooked by us sometimes is just how poor the early church was. When thousands were being converted, as you read through Acts, I mean thousands of people being converted, they're saying... I'm going to be publicly identified through baptism with the man that just 40 days ago was crucified for being a blasphemer. That's my Lord. That's my Savior. Immediately, you're getting shut off from your normal way of life. Immediately, you're getting cut off from family help and the business that you had. Now, no one's going to want to go to you because you worship a blasphemer. So the early church, especially in Acts 2, was so poor. In Acts 2.42, you can see another use of this word for fellowship. Go to Acts 2.42. In that context where thousands are coming to Christ and they're leaving everything to come to Christ, you say, well, what's your plan to take care of your family? I don't know. I just know i got to go be with Christ and His people. This is where we see another use of koinonia. Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, koinonia, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in koinonia. So, in that one verse, fellowship and common, both of those are the word koinonia, same word. We are objectively united to one another, and therefore, subjectively, what you need and I can provide it, it's yours. Again, this group of Christians knew their shared life with Christ meant they share stuff with one another. And this, just to be clear, in case it needs to be said, is not socialism. Socialism is where giving, quote-unquote, is accomplished through threat. It's stealing, and then it's forced redistribution. That's not what's happening in Acts 2 at all. These are people who have been transformed by Christ, and their love for Christ as the treasure of the universe means I love his people as well, and if they need anything, I'll give it to them. That's what's going on in Acts 2. These Christians live in a community with each other where they're not only aware of each other's needs, but seeking to meet those needs. Look at Acts 4. The word pops up again. ESV translates it again, the word common. Acts 4, 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in koinonia, common, Again, that's how they lived in the early church, with an understanding that they belong to one another and therefore my stuff is going to be used for these people. Just think for a second of what you would think of a man, a husband, who refused to provide for his wife. Well, no, that stuff's mine. I just heard a a story yesterday. I'm driving into town where this Wife said one of the problems between her and her husband was when he made extra money, he said, That money's mine. You don't get it. It's like, okay, marriage 101, <laughs> um, the two become what? One. And that is an objective reality. You two are one. Now that's meant to be lived out now. You don't get to say, This is mine, that's yours. I don't get to neglect you when I've got things in my power to help you with. Because we are one. Ephesians 5 makes the point that when the husband loves his wife, he's loving his own body because the two are one flesh. Just like when Christ loved his people, he loved his own body because we're one in Christ. John, 1 John three seventeen, words it this way. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? For John, if you've got the ability to help a brother or sister in need and you don't, he immediately runs to, I thought you loved God. If the need of other Christians is not impacting your schedule or your budget or your energy or your possessions, John wants you to wonder, do I actually love God? And the early church in Acts shows us well how to do this. They loved each other by sharing their stuff together. But eventually, they needed outside help. The needs became so great that Paul starts this traveling tour for many reasons. But one of the things he was doing was taking up collections to take back to them. And now this really displays our union in Christ. Because Paul's going to Christians, yes, but Gentile Christians to help Jewish Christians. And I know that you guys are in different churches, but you guys are all one in Christ. I know you're different nationally, ethnically you are one in Christ. I know that you guys have been bitter enemies for a very long time. But guess what? You're one in Christ. And one of the ways you show that shared union in Christ is by sharing your stuff together. Even Paul told Timothy to help the church get prepared for this. He says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to koinonia, ready to share. Part of the good works that God wants you to be ready to do is just sharing your stuff Again, that is the word in Timothy there for fellowship. Paul's saying that you are to be generous and ready for fellowship at any time. That's one of the ways that you obey Jesus is just by taking care of people's needs in the church. But Again, like every other act of obedience, it's also an opportunity for you to be blessed. Again, sometimes we pit this against one another as if you're only supposed to do good for others with no consideration of how blessed you'll be. But those don't have to be enemies. I can do what honors Christ. I can do what helps my brother and sister in Christ. And then from that, I can also be blessed. Again, there is never an act of holiness or an act of obedience that will ever be to your harm. That's what people of faith live by. Obeying God in faith is always the blessed way to live. Hebrews 13, 16 says it this way. Again, the word share, but it's the same word for fellowship. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have Because such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Again, what a simple concept. God loves when we share things with other Christians in need. When you do it truly caring more for Christ than yourself, more for your other brother or sister than yourself, when you're trusting God, okay, I know in this instance for me to depart with this is actually the pathway to blessing. That's one of the ways you'll experience fellowship. So it's life with Christ, it's life with Christians, it's ministry with Christians, and it's stuff with Christians. For the last point, I want you to also see that it's also suffering with Christians. This is the aspect of fellowship that Romans 12 hits at when it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Again, because we are one in Christ, I am part of the same Christ that you are. He is our head. Different churches, obviously, Flint Hills, McPherson, I get it. But ultimately, Christ is redeeming a people that belong to him, and we share fellowship objectively in that body because of him. This is the way we react when we injure our own body, when our own body is blessed. The whole body rejoices. If I hit my thumb with a hammer, I don't just, I don't know how you would, but (laughs) wiggle my thumb. You, You grab it, you pull your lips in you get on your tiptoes you brace i mean everything changes when one part's suffering why because that is just as much part of my body as my toes so again this is what paul says rejoice with those who rejoice weep with those who weep you go through things in this life with other christians as if it's happening to your own body because biblically it is Our union with Christ makes us one, so your pain is my pain, and your happiness is my happiness, and your suffering is my suffering. Again, on a superficial level, this is easy to understand when you think of any sporting event. If I fill Sanford Stadium in in Georgia, if I go there to watch the Bulldogs, I don't have to know anything about anyone else except what color jersey they're wearing. And when our team does something, our union in that team makes us stand up and rejoice or cry. Either way you know, a very superficial way to understand it. And it has a lot more sobering effect when you think about the love a parent has for a child. You think about a child with a terminal illness. That parent doesn't pray distant prayers. That parent isn't praying really unconcerned if God answers it or not. You're praying as a parent when your child is sick like that, knowing that their well-being is tied to yours because I want them so badly to do well that I'm not doing well until they are. That helps us grasp a little bit better the idea of fellowship in this sense, that we suffer with Christians. And your shared union in Christ is what gives rise to this. Our shared life with Christ means shared life with each other. And when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. When one part of the body rejoices The whole body rejoices. We are fellow body parts with one another, to take Paul's illustration. Not only in regards to suffering that we will naturally experience in a fallen world, because on one level, you don't have to be a Christian to suffer. So there is the sense of we're going to experience suffering just in a fallen world, but especially the suffering that comes from faithfulness to Christ. Jesus promised in John 15 and 16, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. So as we are more and more conformed into Christ's image, we're bearing that image more and more in this world, and the world will treat us more and more like they treated him. That kind of suffering also is what we share together. 2 Corinthians 1.7, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you fellowship in our sufferings. You will also fellowship in our comfort. Philippians 4.14, Yet it was kind of you to fellowship in my trouble. The Philippians were hurting because Paul was hurting. The well-being of one changed the well-being of all. The sufferings that we are to share in, like I said, are not just the regular sufferings of a fallen world. It's the sufferings of what's in Christ. Jesus says in Acts 9, when he finally we hear him talk to Paul there in Acts 9, remember his question, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies with our suffering in such a way that when his people are harmed for his sake, then he says, that's being done to me. This is the kind of union we have in Christ. This is a biblical and helpful way to think of Christian fellowship. It's that kind of identification with one another that not only produces the fruit of love towards one another, but it's also what causes us to be a means and express God's love towards one another. You have fellowship with Christ and his people, therefore you share ministry, you share stuff, you share sufferings with them. That's how we can start to think through the idea of fellowship. Fellowship. Not only is it a helpful way to understand fellowship, it's also a really helpful way to evaluate fellowship. That's what I want to do here to close with. If we run back through our description of fellowship in the New Testament backwards, some of you will find it a helpful tool, a helpful gauge to go, okay, why is it I'm not experiencing what I would love to experience? From time to time as a pastor, this actually next week is nine years at Cornerstone in McPherson. And from time to time, I've had people come in and say something like, I just feel like I'm missing fellowship in this church. Or maybe they phrase it, I don't feel like I'm able to fellowship here. Now, there could be a thousand different reasons. I I get that. Every case is going to need to be understood individually. But on a general level, if you ever had a thought like that, like I'm not experiencing or enjoying fellowship at Flint Hills like I'd like, Let me suggest that you just take this description we've given this morning and run yourself through it. Why is it that I see fellowship in Scripture as something that can be, but so often I look up and realize I'm experiencing less than I find in the Bible? It may be that one of these five categories or more is missing from your Christian life. So let me show you what I mean, and we'll work backwards through the list. Why is your experience of fellowship lacking in the local church? It could be that you are not sharing and suffering with other Christians. You hear of how other Christians are persecuted at work or in the home. And to be honest, a lot of us assume, well, if I was in that situation, I wouldn't have responded that way. That's kind of their own fault. Rather than entering into their suffering with them, we judge them. And maybe this is what's keeping you from enjoying fellowship like you'd like to. Maybe that's part of it. Due to a lack of understanding of why other Christians are suffering. It also may be to a, due to a lack of Christ-likeness on your part. Maybe you're more comfortable in this world than you ought to be because you're less like Christ than you know you ought to be. And so because I'm not being conformed into the image of Christ who the world hates, then of course the world isn't going to treat me the way they treated him, so I'm comfortable. Why are you not comfortable? Again, maybe the world treats us better because we're less like Christ than we think. So you avoid identifying with Christians who suffer, and you fail to identify with Christ in a way that causes you to suffer like he did. Maybe, again going back to the next point, maybe you are more in love with your stuff than you realize. And that remaining worldliness in your heart, not being uprooted and, and, and devoured, not being killed, maybe that's why you're hesitant to, to be more free with your stuff. And so I'm withholding things that I I could meet these needs, but I'm not going to because I love these things. And that will kill your fellowship in a local church. Every now and then, you may give here or there, whatever it is you can, but you still view yourself not as a steward, but as an owner. These, These are my things. You've forgotten that, as I just said, you're a steward. Everything entrusted to you is just that. It's entrusted to you, and every right use of it is you putting in a savings account, if you will, where you're going to reap the benefits later. I don't mind giving this up because I have promises that are going to bless me more later. So maybe that's it. Maybe your money is mainly used for yourself and not the Lord's people. Maybe your possessions are mainly seen as supplying your needs rather than the needs of people around you. That could be another issue with your fellowship. It still could be this one, and this is the one that I feel most passionate about because this is the one that I feel like hits the nail on the head most often. Again, not every time. You may be an exception. But you may not enjoy fellowship in the local church because you just aren't sharing in the work of ministry. Again, through the years, uh, I've been at Cornerstone. I've been a Christian longer than that. and go back to Georgia, my time in a the church there. A lot of people will come in and they'll they'll say something like I feel disconnected from here and my initial response is you are. And so that's that's good that you feel that because it's a reality. Now let's start to work on it. It's unplugging from the work of ministry that causes a lot of us to feel out of the loop. Again, maybe you feel disengaged because you are disengaged. Maybe you're supportive of the ministry through giving and attending but not rolling up your sleeves and digging in. Again, it's It's also possible that you've just grown up in an environment, a church environment, where uh, I want to be as careful as I can. You just weren't trained to do ministry. So then you come to a church that expects you to do ministry, and you just feel crippled. I don't know what to do. I hear you guys having conversations. I don't even know how to have those conversations. How did you know to turn to that verse for that problem? How did you know that that issue was really dealing with this in their heart? And so you're, you're, a lack of preparedness, your lack of equipping through the years, causes you to just freeze and go, okay, I'm just not going to do anything except give to whatever work's going on here because I like it. If that's you, let me suggest to you that you take care of that immediately. You grab a mature Christian in the church here, or one of their pastors, or however it is, y'all divide that up. Grab them and say, look, I feel like I'm not equipped for ministry. Here's what I feel powerless to do. Can you help me? Because that help is not only in Scripture, but it's in this church. God has placed these people around you as the body you're a part of to help equip you as another body part. Again, maybe you feel the frustrations when you're at a Bible study and your conversations just can't go very deep. Maybe your breakfast with someone or dinners with someone, getting coffee with someone, doesn't ever go as well as you'd like it to because you just don't know what to do. I'm telling you, God has set it up in such a way that as a body part, you can get the help you need in this body here. My suggestion is not only to do it, but to do it ASAP because that will revolutionize the way you experience fellowship in the church. But again, that's not all. There's certainly one more thing that you need to consider, and that is the first two points we covered the presence or lack of a real objective union with Christ and Christians. Again, I don't know your specific situation. Maybe you are frustrated and downcast on the idea of fellowship in the local church. You could have real union with Christ that because of disobedience or a lack of equipping or all sorts of reasons that you just aren't experiencing the way you could and should. But as always, it certainly could be that you just lack a real union with Christ. Again, there have been people that I've met in my last 18 years of being a Christian, some people who've expressed a lack of connection with the church. They speak of missing something in their church. I'm just not clicking like I'd like to. And sometimes it is due to the fact that you just don't love the same Christ we love. You're trying to experience something for which you have no real basis. You're looking for fruit where the roots just aren't there. You're trying to force fellowship with people with whom you actually share no real life in Christ. For instance, in McPherson, there's this annual car show. It's a big deal um, among people who love cars, I have to say. Um, It's a big deal with them. I'm not knocking it. I don't know much about it. I just don't care. (laughs) Uh, if I get around a group of car lovers, I just, I'm, I'm out of my element. So I will sit and listen. If you think I can't be quiet, just put me around a group like that. It's like I, I can be quiet. I don't know much. I wasn't raised with it. I don't have much interest in it. I know how to turn it on and drive. One guy said, if you show me the headlights, I can tell you which way they're going. That's about the limit of my discussion. It's, a, it's kind of a joke. When someone mentions a car part at our church, I literally picture the whole vehicle in my head. I don't know (laughs) where you're talking about. Um, So I'm just picturing a car like on a display that rotates. That's just that's what's in my head. Anyway, all that to say, think of how much of a fish out of water I would feel if I went to that car show. I don't put it on my calendar. I'm not going to pay the admission fee. I'm not going to go walk through there and look at things. Within two minutes, I'm going to be like, okay, I'll, I'll go home. But there are people there who come and camp out and plan their whole year around this event because it means the world to them. And so I'll stick out like a sore thumb. I'll feel like I do because I do. Again, I'll never feel like I belong to a car-loving community until I love cars. And you will never belong to a horse-loving community until you love horses. You'll never feel like you belong to a Christ-loving community until you share that same love with Christ. That's what I mean by your lack of experienced fellowship could be due to a real lack of union with Christ. Again, if that's you, the the encouragement that we want to give you all the time is not run to church to try to get that fellowship you're missing. It's run to Christ. That's the root system that you have to be connected to. He is the one that provides everything we enjoy in the church. Christ lived for us. Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. We've been forgiven and blessed in Christ in ways that we could never deserve. Christ is the one that every true Christian is absolutely convinced is worth leaving everything for. Now, we are inconsistent in living that way. I get it. We we are being sanctified. We are not perfect yet, but we are all convinced that he's worth it. He is the treasure of the universe for which Matthew says, I would sell everything out of joy and go purchase that field. That's who we think Christ is. And until you have that viewpoint of him, you will never feel like you belong in a church. Or if you do, it's completely dangerous to you. Because you feel like you belong to a group you actually don't, and we won't find that out until he says, depart from me, I never knew you. It's our common, common love for Christ that causes our church family to love one another in a way that we would literally die for one another. If that sounds foreign to you, just ask some of the mature Christians around you. They would literally lay their life down for you, and you know that in part because they are. So if that kind of love for Christ is missing, don't chase after the fruit of it. Don't seek first and foremost fellowship with Christians. Seek first and foremost Christ. Christ promises, everyone who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. He will receive everyone who comes to him by faith and faith alone. And then with that being accomplished, with that being done, your union with Christ, then that objective union, how those people will start to be shared and experienced in your life. That's how you'll have real experience fellowship Not just now, which it will transform your 2023, your May 28th. It will transform your every day, but it literally transforms your entire eternity. All because of our common union in Christ. Let's pray at this time that God would give us the grace to see Christ for who he is so that we love one another. As an example of what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way that you have overwhelmed us with grace. Just reflecting on Christ and thinking about who he is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. Thinking about the incarnation. Thinking about the life of righteousness that Christ lived perfectly. Thinking about the death that belonged to us that he took willingly and joyfully. Sorrows that we will never understand. Being betrayed by friends, being betrayed by enemies. Father, overwhelm us with your grace in him. Assure our hearts that as empty as that tomb is, Christ's work was accomplished. And because of our union in him, because we are in Christ, we are in him together. We not only have, but can experience real fellowship with you. We can actually know you our God and enjoy fellowship with you. And we can also know one another as fellow believers and enjoy that experience as well. Help us to fight against the the roller coaster of experiences and emotions that so often get us down. When times are good, we can often trust in our own righteousness and own efforts. When times are bad, we can doubt that Christ can save even the worst of sinners. Help us to remember Christ in all this, to lean on his righteousness, never our own. And let that be displayed and shown and let it bear fruit in our lives that shows that we're engaged in the ministry in our church. We are sharing and suffering with our church and we are sharing our stuff with our church. Help us to love Christ and be overwhelmed by him so that we then love one another like we know we all long for. It's in his name we pray. Amen.